As always on Wednesdays, it's my pleasure to welcome you to Research Unplugged. And today I have to say we're, uh, time has flown and we're wrapping up our spring season. This is the last of, um, of the Research Unplugged Wednesday events for spring. But um, we're going out with a bang today with uh, <laughs> Dr. Claude DePamphilus and Molly Levine, our student intern, will tell you a little bit more about uh, Dr. DePamphilus in a second and introduce today's talk. Um, I just want to take a moment to remind you that we have a website, which is www.rps.psu.edu, Research Penn State Magazine. So you can find us online and sign up for our weekly uh, email updates there so you can make sure you don't miss our events uh, coming up in the fall. Um, and also, if you're on Facebook, we have a Fans of Research Unplugged page. We'd love you to join. Also in the back, um, or rather in the front, near the stairs, we have an audience survey form. If you haven't filled one out uh, yet this season, that would be great feedback for us. And we're just um, starting to think about fall. So there's uh, topics or people you'd like to see here, just let us know. So without further ado, I'm going to hand things over to Molly Levine, who will introduce Dr. DePamphilus. Today, as we mark the celebration of Earth Day, it is fitting that we will be hearing from a real expert on the plants of the Earth, Claude DePamphilus. Dr. DePamphilus is a professor of biology in the Eberly College of Science and a faculty member in the Huck Institutes of the Life Sciences. He received his PhD from the University of Georgia, and at Penn State, he is a plant biologist. His research interests include comparative genomics, bioinformatics, and the molecular evolution of plants and flowers. In 2001, he began the Floral Genome Project at Penn State, which he directs. The project is a su successful multi-institution and multi-collaborator study that is funded by the National Science Foundation, and its purpose is to investigate the history and the evolution of ancient flowering plants. We are pleased to have Dr. DePamphilus here to share his findings with us today, and so please join me in welcoming Claude DePamphilus. Thank you, Maya. Thanks very much. It's good to see everybody here today. Lovely spring day. I didn't know when I got up that it would be this nice today. It's really great. Uh, the, the job that I, I set out to do today was talk to you about primordial plants, the earliest flowering plants, but also to get you involved in making some um, observations about some flowering plants and give you some skills that you can use to think about evolution, evolutionary biology, and how to build up a structure for uh, understanding a lot about the diversity of life. So we have this, these few little small goals, that is understanding the diversity of life, and, uh, and we're going to focus our interest on flowers to begin with, but not just on flowers. Uh, everyone is familiar with flowers, the, the critical reproductive organ of angiosperms. And uh, flowers are important to us in many, many ways. Uh, flowers uh, produce fruits. Flowering plants produce fibers, wood, materials for us. And uh, flowers are the organ that regulates pollination and therefore is the central organ in plant reproduction. When a flower changes, when a flower has a particular shape or color, those shapes and colors are really specifically evolved to attract pollinators and to really make them 
work the way the plant wants it to work. And it's not that it's just plant making the pollinator work. The pollinator makes the plant work too. That is, it wants the pollen presented a particular way and the nectar a particular way. So this very complex set of interactions is mediated on the plant side by the flower. Now, flowering plants represent the biggest successful radiation of land organisms that we have. There are over a quarter million species of flowering plants, um, all derived from one single common ancestor that we're going to try and learn a lot about today. There's no other group of plants or animals that is, is uh, successful the way the flowering plants have been. And um, when we take a look at flowering plants like this, we just begin to get uh, an idea of the kind of diversity that we're talking about. These are all angiosperms, um, various kinds, producing beautiful flowers, inflorescences uh, from members of the aster family, uh, large trees, small herbaceous plants, beautiful flowers. And our goal is to, to figure out something about this diversity and to uh, see what kinds of tools we've got available to understand diversity. What I'm going to try to do today is um, cover three of the four topics I'd love to talk with you about. Um, one is to uh, develop some skill at looking at flowers. We're going to tear some flowers apart and look at them and uh, begin to understand some of the more common flower types. Uh, we'll talk about what were the Earth's most ancient flowering plants and how we went about figuring this out. Um, and some of what we know about these plants, I'm going to keep my discussion focused on features of plants, like the structure of the plant, the shape of the plant, that sort of thing. I am not going to emphasize gene sequences and genome sequences, which really is the, the uh, emphasis of our uh, research program. But really, what we're using this research program to do is to learn more about this. So uh, I'm not going to take you through the details of molecular genetics. We'll talk about the details of flowers. This is um, one very, very well-known flowering plant. In fact, this plant, it's called Arabidopsis, is the first plant whose uh, genome was completely mapped and sequenced. We know, we think we know every gene in Arabidopsis, and we know the function of a great many of the genes in Arabidopsis. This little plant is a weed in the mustard family, also known as the Brassicaceae or the Cruciferae. And if we focus our examination on just looking at the flower of this little mustard, um, there are four main kinds of structures. There are, moving from the outside, there are sepals, petals, stamens. And in here, where you can't see, there are carpels. Carpels produce ovules, which get pollinated. Uh, it gets fertilized by the uh, sperm cell that's uh, in the, in the uh, pollen grain. And that then grows to be a seed that's enca encased in a fruit. Here's another way of looking at it. On the outside, the outermost whorl, we call it, is sepals, then petals, stamens, and a carpel. These four basic flower parts, these organs, are always in this order, always from outside to inside. And in fact, the molecular geneticists have helped us understand uh, where they came from in a very deep developmental sense. 
they've identified several genes, three in fact, which if you disrupt them is a direct test of Goethe's hypothesis that flower parts really are modified leaves. If we create a mutant of Arabidopsis that knocks out an A gene, a B gene, and a C gene, we end up with all of the flower parts transformed to leaves. They lose the ability to make flowers, they lose the ability to make each of these four parts, and the flower parts are transformed to leaves. Goethe was right. Flower parts are transformed versions of leaves. So how do these transformed leaves um, normally appear? What, do what are flowers normally like? I think the best thing we can do is um, develop some skills at looking at some flowers and see if we can identify the sepals, petals, stamens, and carpels and see what some of the common flower types are. The yellow flowers for Scythia, and if everyone can take one as they go around, in fact, I'll do some too. Thank you. Take, you can take a flower off and that'll be your flower to take apart. It's okay if you have to. There are plenty. Everyone have a flower? So let's work together and diagnose this flower, see what it's got. And the best way to do this is to start from the outside of the flower. Sepals are often, but not always, differentiated from petals. Petals are usually more colorful. Sepals are often just green or nondescript. And the question is, how many sepals do you see on your flower? Four sepals on the forsythia flower. That's a common number. A lot of, a lot of plants, a lot of flowering plants, especially dicots, have four sepals. How about petals? Four? Okay, another common number. Do you see anything about the petals that's interesting? Do you have one with five? You have a developmental modification. Because these are all from the same plant, you have a develop, I'm not going to call it a mutant. It's like, it's like a five-leaf clover. You have a mistake that that plant made. And certain kinds of mistakes, like mistakes in number, are pretty easy to make. Yeah, it's one of those kinds of vari Evolution requires variation. It's the basis for all evolution is variation. So if we didn't have a four-petaled flower at some point, we wouldn't have um, cherries, or we wouldn't have all kinds of plants that come like these with delphiniums with five petals. Uh -huh. Yeah, so some variation in nature is standard. Some of it is genetic, and the stuff that has a genetic basis is the part of that variation that could evolve and be selected for. Okay, so we've got a four and a four. Can anyone see the stamens? They're pretty small. How many do you have? They're yellow. They're yellow and they're, actually they're pretty big. Two. Two. Four, four, two begins to define the family of flowering plants that we're looking at. And then inside, you probably can't see too much about what's inside, but on the inside there's one carpal, one ovary. And if you would cut it in half with a razor blade and look at it with a little um, uh, a, mic, uh, a, a lens, you could see it had two compartments to it. 
So it's an ovary with two carpels fused together. Anybody know what family this is? It, the, the name of the plant is Forsythia, and plants are, are grouped together into families that help us basically predict their characteristics and understand some of the variation. It's in the uh, olive family, or the Oleaceae. So is the ash tree and some other common uh, plants around this area. But olives are in the Oleaceae, as is Forsythia. So we've got four-parted four petals and stamens. Together we call the petals and, the, uh, petals and sepals rather the perianth. So a four-parted perianth is pretty common. Five-parted perianths are pretty common as well as in dicots. So both of these, uh, so plants with fours and fives are typically dicots. Let's take a look at another plant, the Alstromeria. Everybody ha can have a, well, we may have to pair up. Yeah. If you're sitting alone, you get a flower. And if you're sitting with someone, share a flower. It's called Alstromeria. Alstromeria. Buddy, need a flower? If everybody's got one, then we're in good shape. If, if we have more left, okay. Well, gardeners call it Alstromeria. You go walk across to Woodrings, they call it Alstromeria. This might be a plant that doesn't have a common, common name. Yeah, violet is all, violets, uh, well, is the common name for viola, um, but petunia is both a scientific name and a common name. I think Alstromeria may be the commonly used name. Very good. Does everyone have one? So let's take a look at this plant. Um, anyone have a spare? Is there, or there, you'll, okay, you'll have to tell me, do you see sepals? Do you see petals? Ah, yeah, okay. The outermost ones usually are the sepals. I, I'm going to stick with the alstromeria. Yeah. And in this case, there's not a really big difference between the sepals with this little bit of green and the next one in the petal, which lacks the green. So how many do you have? Three. Plus three, how many stamens? Six. Should be six. Sometimes you end up with too few, and you know what's happened? The, the, uh, the um, anther at the tip of the stamen has fallen off. You probably will still find six filaments, even if you find only four or five anthers. Yes, yes, they all almost all the time, except for these occasional developmental oddities, you'd have six good anthers when that flower first opens. There is one ovary here, and if you could cut it apart, you'd see it had three parts to it. There are three carpels in the ovary, and they're all fused together. So you're seeing now you've got two basic body plans. You've got a body plan in fours, and I said fives are common here. You got a body plant in threes. Sixes are common as well. Plants have the ability, they've evolved lots of different modifications on this basic body plan in which it's not uncommon 
to see plants that have many petals. Both monocots, sometimes dicots can have many petals. But these are a few of the really common types. Is there anything else about this plant, Alstromeria, that could help us identify it as a monocot? This is a term you may know. There's dicots, there's monocots. What's it mean to be a dicot? It means that if you plant the seed and it germinates, two little seedling leaves first. Those are the seedling leaves that are present in the seed in its dormant stage. And these are the first two ones that come out, dicots. Monocots, like a grass. Alstromeria is a monocot. It would have one cotyledon. And another feature of monocots is the leaves. What can you tell me about the leaves? Ah, ah, well, but I don't think you can, I don't think you can see that here because dicots come in all types, monocots come in all types, but there is something you can see in these leaves right now. It has to do with the way the veins are arranged. In fact, your observation might have been right for your plant, but yeah, it, it, it's, not, it's not so that different numbers of leaves uh, characterize monocots and dicots. So it's something else. Ah, there is a difference in the way grasses present their leaves. But something that I want you to see is that the veins in the leaves are kind of peculiar. The veins in the leaves of this Alstromeria are all in lines. This is called parallel veins. And you would not see parallel veins in hardly any dicots makes the big difference between most monocots with parallel veins and most dicots where the, where the veins are netted and they grow anastomosing, it's called. Okay, so we have two big kind, groups of flowering plants. If you took botany any time in the last 100 years, I don't know, um, you probably were taught that monocots and dicots were the fundamental split in flowering plants. And this, these are the two major groups and that our basic problem, if we want to understand ancestral plants, is to figure out if they were monocots or they were dicots. And there were people who argued both sides on this story. So to summarize here, dicots, fours, fives, many. Dicots can be herbs, shrubs, or trees. Monocots, threes and sixes, herbs, one cotyledon, and parallel veins. Which one wins? Well, how do we find out who were the earliest angiosperms? One way to do this is to go into the fossil record. And um, as long as people have been looking at fossils, there have been precious few really good fossils of very early angiosperms. This is a special one. It was in Science uh, in, a, in an article that includes some of the story I'm going to tell about today. Um, it just this couple of weeks ago, the 3rd of April, and this is a fossil, this is a reconstruction using a computer program of a 3D image of a fossil flower, a, a really excellent fossil that has all the parts intact. Um, this one uh, was from the fossil record 94 million years ago, and it has characteristics of a monocot. One, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. It's like a monocot. We call that trimeris characteristic. And if we 
look across the whole range of paleobotany uh, that describes what paleobotanists have been able to learn over, over many decades is that the earliest fossil flowers that people are finding look something like this. They look basically like trimeris type. They look like they may have been a monocot or monocot-like. But there's, important, there's an important limitation of what we can learn from the fossil record. Does anyone have any ideas about why getting our information from the fossil record may, may have some limitation? <laughs> Share an idea. Certainly true. I mean, their color, the smell, the, the chemistry of these plants, completely unknown. There are limitations in what we can learn, even from the very best fossils. And you're entirely right about that. Yes? What are our chances of preservation? That's a very, very good point. The chances of preservation for a flower like this, extremely low. Only a few, like I said, have been found in, in decades and decades of searching. So it might be, as you're suggesting, that dicots are a little harder to preserve, or maybe they grew in habitats that were not making fossils, that weren't made into fossils. This is a very special habitat, a special time, a special place where that plant got, got uh, covered and was allowed to fossilize. Very, very special and unusual conditions. Not that we don't try and learn every single thing we can from these. Any, any other ideas? Yeah. Ah, the pollen is actually one of the most abundant parts of the fossil record. Pollen is really well preserved. It's true. A wind pollinated plant like um, a birch tree or an oak tree will have a lot of pollen in the fossil record. And um, some pollen grains are very distinctive and we can learn about it. The earliest flowering plants, though, have pretty non un, uh, indistinct types of pollen grains. And although we see pollen, we don't really know what they're from. We don't even know if they're from gymnosperms or angiosperms, um, plants like pine trees or flowering plants. So that's another limitation is if we only have a part of the plant, we can't tell what it's from, even though there's a lot of pollen in the fossil record. Okay. We need another way to try to learn about the history of flowering plants. We need a completely different strategy. And the completely different strategy is shown here. It's building phylogenetic trees, that is a tree of life that describes from living plants something about the way they're connected and infers here and here and here and here and here extinct ancestors that we can no longer see but we might be able to learn about. If we know that all of these plants here are dicots, as they are, we know that their ancestor was very likely a dicot. And all these ancestors were dicots. These are all monocots, so that one was a monocot. And guess what? There are other things that branched off before the monocots and the dicots. The rest of this we call our outgroup. This is gymnosperms and other things that aren't even seed plants. So the key ones are here. Let me show you a different picture. 
This is called phylogenetic analysis. And if we, if we do phylogenetic analysis, that is by, tell you what we did, we extracted chloroplasts, which have their own DNA in them. We sequence the DNA that's in the chloroplast. That gives you about 40, no, about uh, 60 different genes that we're able to use and compare with each other from all those plants. Those were compared for their pattern of similarity and difference. That is what gave us the phylogenetic tree. And from it, we get these missing links. So here's the monocot and dicot. And we found in the monocots and in the dicots, there are two major groups. We called them rosids and asterids. And you, we, between the cherry and the forsythia, there's one of each here. Here's where the missing links are. Here are the things that we haven't seen in the fossil record. Here are the things that we haven't, um, that we have to see in order to uh, be able to know something about the ancestor and the most primordial flowering plants that lived here, even though all of these live to the present. I've shown you three of the several groups down there. One is called Amborella. The most familiar of all of these early angiosperms is water lilies. You can go up to Black Moshannon any time during the summer and see lots of water lilies. We're studying the water lilies as part of our project because they're the most commonly uh, observed ancient plants. Those are very ancient plants. And then there's a larger group here called magnolias. I've kind of drawn with the size of the triangle, the size of the group. Only a few of these survive today, about 2,000. Tiny compared to the, the rest, the other quarter million. But they are very, very interesting. I've also drawn something here called Laka. I like to refer to this last ancestor of all angiosperms, the last angiosperm common ancestor as Laka. And I like to think about it as something that lived. It did. It did live. And we're going to see how we can infer some things about Laka, now that we know the tree. Here are a few pictures of some of the basal angiosperms, these missing links in flowering plant diversity. Um, here's Amborella. Amborella is a small tree, and I'll show you more in a minute. Common in this area, a basal angiosperm called tulip poplar or yellow poplar, a big, fast-growing tree, and a lot of you probably have it on your street, street tree. Here's the water lily, another, uh, at least a family and genus that appear locally. It's called Aristolochia, um, or birthwort. This is avocado, or persia. It's got flower parts in sixes and fives. And this is pepper. Black pepper is a basal angiosperm. This grows in tropics. And black pepper, avocado, and one other plant, star anise, are probably the three plants that you may have eaten, which are basal angiosperms. Avocado, by far the most um, valuable economically of the basal angiosperms for food. But yellow poplar is an important wood tree as well. Let's see. So the point of this slide is these should look pretty different. Tiny little flowers that you can't even see without a microscope. Strange structures that are highly bilaterally symmetrical, radially symmetrical ones. 
um, things in uh, sixes. Here's one with many petals to it. And Amborella, the one at the very base of the tree, um, it also has no common name. It's a small tree or a shrub, and the only place it lives is New Caledonia. It's native to New Caledonia. There are only a couple of populations of Amborella surviving in New Caledonia. If we didn't have these, we wouldn't even know, we wouldn't even know uh, how to orient and root the tree of flowering plants. But, but because we have Amborella, we now know the, the first surviving branch. And I think we're lucky. It's a rare plant and has almost no genetic diversity within, its, within the species. And that suggests that it almost went extinct, but we're lucky we still have it. It is the only member of its family. It's the only member of its order. It's this one species set apart from a quarter million others. And it was brought into cultivation by a couple of honeymooners. The director of the botanical garden at UC Santa Cruz asked them, knowing they were going to the Southwest Pacific, uh, to stop by New Caledonia and maybe pick up a few interesting angiosperms that he thought might be worthy of further study. It lived there pretty much unknown for about 20 years until people started to build it into their phylogenetic trees and out it popped. And now we know a lot about Amborella as a result of focusing our interest in it. So, Let's talk about what we know about Laca. Here's an easy one. Did Laca produce flowers? Well, all we really have to do to infer the ancestors is ask if these tips produced flowers. And surely all the asterids and rosids, all the dicots produced flowers. Their ancestor produced flowers. That did too. Monocots all produced flowers. That common ancestor made a flower and all the way down to the flowers of magnolias, water lilies, and amborella. You bet, Laca had flowers. We can know this. We can know this because we can infer this from the tree. We may be able to find a fossil, too, of a water lily or a magnolia one day. They also make fruits. There are a few fruits over there. Don't forget, without the fruits, we don't have the life cycle of the flowering plant. We need the fruits, and there's an avocado in front. Great big seed for an avocado. They made a fruit, yep. One of the other key characteristics about flowering plants is a phenomenon known as double fertilization. When pollination occurs, a pollen grain uh, releases two sperm cells, not just one, and the sperm cells uh, engage in two fertilization events. One fertilizes the ovule, and the other one fertilizes, uh, one fertilizes the egg, and the other one fertilizes another cell in the, um, in the uh, two cells in the ovule. That makes two fertilization events involving three cells all together, and you end up with um, a, a baby plant with something else called an endosperm that is a feeding structure. Double fertilization. All these plants have double fertilization. That had double fertilization, too. That's the third key characteristic about flowering plants we know. OK, time to take a break and look at a different kind of plant. Let's take a look at a magnoliad flower, something from this group of magnoliads. We're going to look at 
a magnolia flower, Martha went out and risked all kinds of, <laughs> risked arrest and <laughs> maybe each aisle can have one, yeah. So magnolias have just come into flower a few days ago. They're beautiful plants with huge flowers, and this is a basal angiosperm that you can look at. Let's see. Yep, yeah, I hear you diagnosing the flower correctly. Yeah, you're working your way from the outside world all the way in. Okay. It does smell really nice, too. Can anyone tell me what they're seeing in this flower? They, they would be wide open if they were happy on the tree. They'd be wide open. Though I have to tell you, there are some flowering plants whose flowers never open. They're used to self-fertilization. And one way to be sure that you don't get any pollen from anyone else is to never open your flower, right? These guys, they open their flower, and they're used to attracting all kinds of pollinators, but primarily um, uh, uh, beetles and uh, some uh, kinds of bees will come visit these. But tell me what you can see in the flower. What do you, when you try and diagnose the parts, what do you see? Are there any sepals? How many? couple of different things down there, aren't there? Yeah, there are some, uh, there are a few leaves that are on these at the base of the flower. There are some sepals. I think most of them are going to have three sepal-like things. But I got to tell you, in a lot of basal angiosperms, you can't tell the difference. In fact, they all pretty much look the same, the sepals and the petals, um, unless you just happen to have... Um, uh, the ones on the outside get more light and they might darken a little bit. But one of the differences between most basal angios, many basal angiosperms and most others is that uh, the sepal petal differential differentiation isn't so clear. How about the stamens? What can you tell me about the stamens? Did it look, do they look like the forsythia and the uh, alstromeria stamens? They're short. They don't have a long narrow filament, do they? Whole lot of stamens. So they're short. And how about, how about in this direction? They're not round, are they? They're flat. They are tending toward being flat. This is called laminar. Nice thing. If the hypothesis is that stamens are modified leaves, basal angiosperms often have stamens that are a lot more leaf-like. How about the carpels? This is a tough part. I might have to show you a picture of what you're seeing. There are lots of carpels here. And there are lots of carpels in a kind of a cone-like structure. So here's a picture with the uh, uh, petals showing. Here some of the stamens have fallen off. A few of the laminar stamens are left. 
And here is the collection of carpels. Unlike those other ones we saw, where I said there were two or three carpels, this has lots of carpels, and they're not fused together. Lots of carpels unfused. And when the magnolia produces a fruit, here's a nice uh, southern magnolia with its beautiful red seeds, these carpels are not really even all that close together. They open up and present a seed, but these really are part of a sort of a unified structure, but not really fused. Okay, so another thing about these flower parts, in addition to having lots and lots of petals, is they're sort of spirally arranged. You don't have a whirl, which is one, two, three, four things at the same place. They spiral around. This is called philotaxy, and here's where your leaf arrangement issue comes in. Because basal angiosperms have, sometimes, spiral philotaxy for their leaves as well as their flowers, a, a match there. Laminar stamens, many unfused carpels. These are things you wouldn't see in, in uh, eudicots, in dicots or monocots, your typical ones. Other basal angiosperms, you really can't tell the difference between sepals and petals. They call those tepals. <laughs> and then, and then, you can find basal angiosperms that have combinations of threes, fours, fives, sixes, manys, anything you want. You can even find basal angiosperms like some of the water lilies where the um, um, petals integrate. You get petals that get smaller and smaller and smaller as they get closer to the middle and they eventually start to look like stamens and they get more and more pollen on them. They integrate. So, Basal angiosperms haven't figured out, all of them, how to do things the way the rules say they should. Okay? Now, let's look at one of these phylogenetic trees and what it can help us say about LACA and the basal angiosperm flower types. This is a more complicated graph, so I will walk you through what we've got. In this case, we've got the dicots over on this side. They're formally known now as eudicots for a minute, something I'll tell you in a bit. We've got monocots here. We've got this highly diverse set of basal angiosperms. And um, what I did was color onto the phylogenetic tree different types of perianths. That's the way the sepals and the petals are. And this is the kind we first learned about. The sepals and the petals are distinct in two separate worlds. Okay, we've got that in dicots, we've got that in the monocots, though it's not, by, it's not the only kind you have in monocots, but look at the basal angiosperms. You've got a whole slew of other things, just one that has basically your very, very typical um, uh, two bar, bipartite whorls. Basal angiosperms are tremendously diverse. This is something like our Cambrian radiation of flowering plants. Remember, you go back to the Cambrian and you see all kinds of animals with funny numbers of legs and appendages. That Cambrian radiation only left over a little bit of, of animal, a few types of animal body plants. Well, here we have a wide variety of flowering flower plants, and only a few types survived into the kinds that are most common, monocots and dicots. Lots of experimentation, a few big winners. Monocots with about 25% of the flowering plants and about 75% are dicots. So in one way, the basal angiosperms are sort of the losers 
in this big game of evolution because there aren't very many of them. But everything that came about here is because of genetic information that arose here. Without the things that evolved here, those two big success stories would never have happened. That is evolution. Evolution is change through time with a genetic basis. And there is, and part of what I, can't, what I can't talk about, is what genes are involved in doing this. We know a lot about that. We know a lot about what genes do these things and all the other topics, I'll, all the other characters I'll talk about. Um, those are genetic changes through time. This is the story of flower evolution. The, the earliest type flowers we can infer had a spiral type phyllotaxy, or maybe simple with just one whorl. It's only later that the very standard petals and sepals of distinct numbers evolved. So what's that tell us about LACA? We'll keep a little keep a little scorecard here. They've got flowers, fruits, double fertilization. We showed that. They've, we can, by looking at similar kinds of trees and doing the same kind of analysis, we can say that the flowers had indeterminate, that is, they weren't certain about how many flower parts, or maybe trimeris for the earliest, earliest ones. The perianth was probably spiral, maybe a single whorl, the perianth was probably not differentiated into sepals and petals in the earliest flowering plants. The carpels, which were so nicely sealed together in forsythia and alstroemeria that there wasn't anything to see. I, I didn't give you razor blades to cut them open and see. You could see those separate carpels in magnolia. And the carpels themselves in some basal angiosperms aren't even sealed together. They release a sticky fluid that keeps them sealed with the ovules inside here. And basal angiosperms, the earliest ones, were woody. That was the, the earliest now extinct flowering plant was woody. And it had water conducting cells, known as xylem, that were gymnosperm-like instead of angios, the kinds that we're used to in angiosperms. Tracheids, these little ones, are the types you see in gymnosperms. Vessels were not present when flowering plants first evolved. They had to figure that out later. They evolved that later. So what do we know about LACA? One other really important thing. How about the cotyledon question? For that, I'm going to show you some numbers. These are dicots, two. Dicots, two. There's monocot. Almost all the basal angiosperms are two. Or you can't tell. They don't produce seed leaves. If, you, if they've got them, they're dicots. What does that tell us about LACA? Yeah, LACA was a dicot. LACA was a dicot. Monocots are a secondary development. We started out with two, and this lineage that evolved into monocots lost one cotyledon. So it's not that they were gained, they were lost. Monocots are on a lineage that has lost a cotyledon. Laca was a dicot. Basal angiosperms are dicots. Okay. Now the thing I can't take the time to talk about, because I think we are probably running out of time, we're trying to take a view 
of flowering plants that is a genetic view. We're trying to figure out, in addition to this phylogenetic history, we're trying to figure out all the genes that Laka had. We would like to know exactly what genes Laka had, how they were used, and how those genes diversified to make different kinds of flowering plants. If you know that, then you know what it takes to make a flower of different structure, what it takes to make plants with different biochemistries to make woody versus herbaceous plants. So our goal is to use gene sequencing, and here's a little demonstration of that, to figure out the entire set of genes that then we can infer that Laka had. Already, I can tell you that we know about 10,000 genes that Laka had. And we can tell you that there were lots of gene duplications that happened since that first Laka that gave rise to new genes with very specific functions. But Laka itself had a pretty complex toolbox of genes involved in all of these kinds of processes. It just didn't have every single thing. So, do we have time? We have another minute or two? Why don't we leave the last 10 minutes for Good, good. For okay, so in summary, what did we learn about the diversity of plants, of flowering plants? What's something that we learned about the diversity of flowering plants? What are some of the major groups? Monocots, dicots, basal angiosperms are among, they are actually dicots, okay? This is why I introduced at the last minute this term eudicot. We now save dicots for the standard dicot plants. We, say, we use the term eudicot, meaning true dicot, for asterids and rosids. And even though the basal angiosperms have two cotyledons, we, we simply, they are dicots, but we refer to them as basal angiosperms. EU, meaning true. Yeah. That's correct. You might think that expanding the number of cotyledons would be a sensible way to go. But in fact, it didn't work that way. So, well, well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are we sure of that? So, you know, how do you know something in science is a very important question. And um, we have the phylogeny to go on, but that's probably not enough to say we know. We would love to see fossils that either, we'd like to see fossils that go back as far as the, er, those earliest angiosperms. When we, uh, when we use molecular clocks, this is a method of dating the event, we, we can see that flowering plants go back about 150 or 160 billion years, but our oldest fossils are only about 120 or 130. The, if we could get a really great, well-preserved fossil, 150 billion years old, the prediction is we would see it was a dicot. Te it's a testable prediction. So the phylogeny gives us pretty good evidence, but um, we always need more evidence to gain further confidence. And we don't yet have any information that really conflicts with that, but we think that they were dicots. We could also look at the developmental programs and look at what genes they had and what genes distinguished monocots and dicots and tested a, basically get a third line of evidence. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's right. Just that small lineage, small, uh, 65,000 species of monocots, they, were the they look like they were the later development. But I, I agree with the premise of the question. How do you know something in science? It requires multiple lines of evidence, multiple tests, and it's completely valid to want to see those fossils and to want to do the genetics and to maybe reconstruct an early angiosperm or some part of it where you could uh, uh, explore how the genes involved in, in cotyledon development actually work. Yes? How, how many genome sequences are there now for plants, and how many do we have that are basal angiosperms? The answer is, in terms of whole genome, the complete map like Arabidopsis, there are a half a dozen flowering plants that have been sequenced. Two of them are grasses. The rest are dicots, eudicots. And there are zero for basal angiosperms. We want to change that. Of course, we've proposed to NSF, and we're hoping we find out pretty soon, that they give us the green light to sequence the genome of one basal angiosperm. And that one would be Amborella. But so far, what we know is based on looking at the genes that are expressed in these Plants. That's why I can say we know about 10,000 genes already based on looking at expressed genes. But zero genomes. There are genomes of some earlier plants still. There's a moss, there's a fern relative, and there's a, a, a couple of green algae that have been sequenced. So we have about 10 genomes we can use for comparison of what, the, what these organisms once had. That would come on the tree, um, angiosperms. Next branch out is gymnosperms, things like pine and cycad and ginkgo. Next branch out is ferns, and the next branch out is the mosses and liverworts. So ferns, they are early plants. They, they evolved without seeds. So they branched off the plant tree of life before seeds. Gymnosperms and angiosperms evolved seed ability, and then flowering plants evolved flowers. Does that answer your question? Ferns do not have seeds. They have spores, and it makes a difference, because a seed is something produced by the fertilization of an ovule, and, and ferns don't have those. Ferns have spores, which are tiny, dust-like, and uh, they can grow to produce the other, the, the generation of fern, which is um, a haploid generation, usually very tiny, and you usually don't see much of them, but they're very important because you alternate between haploid and diploid. The big, the big fern plant is the diploid. The spore makes the little haploid. Yeah, yes. Amborella, yeah. Uh, how different is that from Laca? Very good question. Amborella helps us predict what Laca was like, but Amborella is on a long, long branch, all on its own. We have every reason to think that it's changed in many ways. Okay. One of the ways, so I, I, I can tell you more easily ways in which it's different from the ancestor, because probably in tens of thousands of ways it's sim similar to the ancestor. One way in which it's different from the ancestor is that it produces 
separate male and female flowers on different plants. That's very unusual in terms of the way most flowering plants are. And what we can see when we look at the early development of Amborella flowers, they all produce male and female parts, but very late in development, either the male or the female parts are switched off. That tells us that, that they have the ability to produce both male and female parts. Just a later developmental change, they switched it off. Another thing about Amborella is that it accumulates aluminum to a very high degree. It's an aluminum accumulator. It may have very important biochemical processes that we may be very lucky to find out about if we get to sequence the genome of Amborella. And I guess we go on, I and mean, there are just lots of similarities and differences, and it's important to realize, as I think you did, that that, that first branch isn't necessarily the same, it's not the same as the ancestor, it's 150 million years separated from the ancestor. But things that it has along with the other ones help us infer what the ancestor had. Yes? Yeah, um, has anybody, you know, I heard Benoit Mandelbrot taught about 25 years ago. Has anybody taken his fractals and applied them? I don't know. I doubt it. Uh, whenever you say every, the answer is no. Because I can tell you plenty of concepts that haven't been touched by it, but have, have, um, thing, have mathematical concepts like Mandelbrot's or, or studies of Fibonacci series had an impact on scientific thinking? And the answer is yes. In, in, in fact, it has. Um, things like that are very powerful ways of thinking, looking at something from a different perspective. And um, we find that these number series are often a good match to the way plant form can be described. Fascinating. No one knows why, um, but it was an insight that the, that the mathematicians had that proves to have lots and lots of, um, lots and lots of applications, not only in uh, plants, animals, even in the way uh, the earth cracks up in the tundra. Is there a link between plants and animals? We share a lot of the same genes as those plants do. Um, I don't know exactly what the number is. It depends on how you define a shared gene. We have, sh we have thousands of genes that have unquestionably got the same gene with a very similar function in plants and animals. We share a common ancestor that didn't look like a plant or an animal about a billion years ago. It was a single-celled organism that, um, that uh, separated and relative, this is kind of reason, on the big, big tree of life, these are sort of later developments. The big, big tree of life is all tiny organisms that are microscopic things. Um, but about a billion years ago, the big radiation occurred that gave rise to animals, fungi, and plants. Animals and fungi are more closely related than either are to plants. But a billion years ago, 